0: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. And when Benevento had grown severely distressed by assault and the scourge of hunger, Guido was commanded to hasten immediately to the city. Now, this was the same Guido, Duke of Spoleto and relative of Siconulf, who, from lust of money to which the race of the Franks is greatly enslaved, disregarded the bonds of kinship and proceeded immediately to the support of Radilgis. Through messengers, he suggested to Siconulf, who was besieging the city, that he abandon the siege and go back to his own land, saying, amongst other things, Let me talk to Radalgis so that I can be of more help to your side. Accordingly, Sikonulf went away. Guido, meanwhile, drew close, and after accepting a chair from Radalgis worth seventy thousand gold numi,s broke off whatever he had promised to Siconulf, his relative, and leaving him behind, returned along the road by which he had come. Quote from the History of the Lombards of Benevento by Erchampert, as translated by Joan Rowe Ferry. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Welcome to From Wittenberg to Westphalia. My name is Benjamin Jacobs, and this is episode 17, Gadeshi Make Good. Before we start, I have a few contributors to thank. First up is David, who informs me that some know him as Athanasius Kircher, Mudlark Mendelssohn Meadows. That is a regnal name unworthy of my attempts at improvement, and so we move on. Next up is Kim, who shall hereafter be known as Kim the Upholstery Hammer, Vanquisher of the Ottomans. Finally, we have Stephen who sent along a very kind note, and who shall hereafter be known only as the Light Taupe Knight, Hero of the Northern Transitional Meadow. Thank you all for your donations. And for all the rest of you, please do consider donating. But if you're feeling a bit skint, one of the best ways to help out the show is by giving a written five-star review on the iTunes Store. It really is a big deal. You can also stop by the website, the Facebook page, or email me. I'd also like to announce another addition to the Wittenberg to Westphalia Wars of the Reformation organization. No, my wife isn't pregnant again. Instead, we've brought on board an audio editor, Andrew Fancook. He's done a lot of great work over at the Lesser Bonapartes podcast, which is awesome in in and of its own right. And he's done a lot of work for uh, Travis Dow, friend of the show. So, he comes highly recommended, and I'm really looking forward to working with him. This is going to be the first episode where we've worked together, and uh, let me know what you think. I think it's going to be great, and um, if any of you out there need any audio editing, uh, let me know on the Facebook page or by email, and I'll put you in contact with Andrew. He's going to have a website up at some point in the sh- near future, and then I'll start plugging that. So, in the meantime, let's start with the episode. All right, then. Let's do it pell-mell. Last time out, we looked at the northern branch of the Gadeshi family, whose wars over the ownership of the Breton March would eventually destroy that territory, help facilitate the Viking invasions, and would see the Carolingians recognize the independence of the Breton Kingdom. As collateral damage, they caused the three surrounding duchies to be merged into a new border region under Robert the Strong. Though Robert himself would repeatedly squabble with the Carolingians, Robert helped stabilize the region by fighting off numerous Viking raids. Robert's descendants, the Robertians, would come to control huge portions of western Francia, and his son Odo would be key in defending Paris from the Vikings. Today, however, we are following the family of Lambert II of Nantes, as they moved south with the army of Lothair, eldest son of Louis the Pious. As you hopefully remember from last time, Lambert had supported Lothair in his rebellion against Louis, and as such was exiled to Italy with his prince though deprived of his ancestral territory in the breton march he was one of the most forceful supporters of lothair and could as a result expect some compensation for his loss from the grateful if humbled prince indeed it was vital for lothair that this be the case lothair needed to hold his army together and consolidate his new territory if he was going to protect himself from his brothers let alone reassert his right to rule francia and so lambert was given command of the duchy of spoleto this was a good choice on a few different levels, but let's focus for a moment on an important first question. What is a Spolento? Spolento was a region established as a duchy by the Lombards between the eastern Apennines of central Italy and the Adriatic Sea. If you remember our discussion of the geography of Italy, I called this region the Mark, and indeed after the Frankish conquest the region was reorganized as a border region, and the rulers are at various times called Margraves, marquises, Counts, or Dukes. I'm going with the latter for simplicity's sake. As we've discussed before, the Mark is a flat, fertile region which allows easy, mountain-free communication between southern Italy and the Po Valley. This easy access makes it a strategic location, while its fertility gave anyone controlling it a major advantage in the agriculturally focused Middle Ages. Podcast footnote. The modern region of Spolento is actually located in a different place, as a result of wars in the later Middle Ages. End podcast footnote. If we broaden our context a little, we can understand a bit more the importance of the mark, and thus of Spolento. North and west of Spolento were the Papal States, and south of both the Papal States and Spolento was the Lombard Duchy of Benevento, the Byzantine cities of the coast, and, depending on the day, a few hordes of Saracens running around. The Papal States had a fairly interesting composition. Essentially, they were the old Exarchate of Ravenna, and indeed in the north Ravenna anchored the Papal possessions in the southern Po often called the Pentopolis, because it was dominated by five key cities, one of which was Ravenna. The region is also sometimes called the Romagna. Whatever it was called, it was linked to the region around Rome by the Umbria corridor that runs between the two ridges of the Apennines, a curious geological feature that we discussed back in episode 12. A previous discussion skimmed a bit over the geography of the Roman region itself, and we won't be improving upon that today, But suffice it to say that in the south, the Apennines spread to fill most of the peninsula, and as such form the southern border of the Roman region. This mountainous border region would become important to Catholic monasticism, with the foundation of the Abbey of Monte Cassino by St. Benedict. But more importantly for our purposes, is the fact that this is the same Monte Cassino that formed the capstone of a defensive line that held up the Allies for a year in World War II. To put this another way, the southern border of the Papal States was guarded by a mountain range so imposing that it took the American army a year to blast through it with modern artillery. As the Lombards lacked the advantages of the American military, the Papal regime was able to turn this southern border into a relatively stable military frontier, particularly as the nearby Byzantine coastal possessions were far more attractive to raiders and conquerors alike. Not so in the East. Though the Apennine Plateau of the south is wide, it leaves at least some kind of corridor all the way to the heel of Italy along the whole length of the Adriatic shore. This made Spolento doubly important. Not only was it an easy way from southern to northern Italy, it was essentially the only easy route from southern to northern Italy. More troubling, it was lacking in major fortified port cities, but presented numerous white sandy beaches for piratical raiders to land upon. So, the importance of the mark is clear at this point, but for the Carolingians, the garrisoning of the mark might seem to present a problem. The mark is isolated from the rest of the Carolingian Empire by the Papal States, but the rulers of Spolento were appointed by and supported by the Frankish emperors. Armies and messengers regularly marched to and from Spolento from Frankish territory, which means that they had to cross Roman territory. But didn't Charlemagne grant the popes independent rule in the Papal States? I think this is an important point to emphasize, because it really clarifies the relationship of the papacy with the Empire. Most historians of Charlemagne accept at face value the grant by Charlemagne of papal independence in the papal states, or at least they don't take the time to clarify this bit of imperial propaganda. But the reality was much more complex. The idea may have initially been to use the Papal States as a buffer, but it became clear within two years of the Frankish conquest that the Popes could not stand up to the Lombards, even with their expanded territory. The establishment of the Mark of Spolento represented a recognition by Charlemagne that the Franks would need to have a more active hand in Italy, and from that point forward the Franks acted increasingly as if the Pope was a Frankish vassal. A very important vassal, with his own weirdo bureaucracy, but still a vassal, and this would eventually start to fray the relationship of the papacy with the empire. But this is getting pretty far ahead of where we are in today's story. For now, it should just be noted that the party line from both the empire and the papacy is that they were allies in the good governance of Christendom, and that if the Franks wanted to send a few armies and messengers across Roman territory to the borders that were actually being threatened by the Lombards and Saracens, well, that was pretty much part of the deal. You can't make an omelet without getting eggs to the frying pan from the refrigerator. So for Lothair, Spolento had massive political as well as military significance. The Duke of Spolento would be the imperial official who worked most closely with the papacy on defense issues, was expected to be uncommonly powerful in military terms, and shared a very long border with the popes. He was, theoretically, the light of good governance shining on the southern border, the most powerful noble on sight if the pope had a problem. We, of course, have no records on the decision-making process, but for Lothair, the man for the job was probably a no-brainer. Lambert, his most violent supporter, had spent his life guarding a volatile imperial frontier against a tribal society with a kaleidoscopic political structure. He was an experienced military leader, used to independent action and command, singularly loyal to Lothair, and probably commanded a sizable retinue of now-landless soldiers. No one else had Lambert's qualifications. Which must have made it a huge bummer when Lambert just suddenly died in 834 after only two years in place. Given that those two years were occupied by the unraveling of Lothair's rebellion and the retreat of Lothair's army back to Italy, it's entirely possible that Lambert never actually made it to Spolento. What happened was that after the failure of Lothair's Second Revolt, the one which resulted in Lambert's exile, Lothair was allowed to keep his army, but all his officers and men were deprived of their lands in northern Europe. As a result, the army moved south, into Italy, probably with a huge number of families in tow. Lothair encamped the army near Pavia, The capital of the Italian kingdom, and set about regrouping the army, collecting and straggling men and families, distributing land and laying plans. The mixed group of soldiers and refugees were therefore camped in central Lombardy, a flat, wet area renowned today for its irrigation channels, but which would have been very swampy at the time due to the collapse of the Roman infrastructure. As has been the case several times at this point, disease broke out, I have read some sources claim yellow fever, and decimated the army. Lambert was killed in the disaster. As far as the Gadeshi are concerned, the next few years are something of a question mark. The rest of the family were not harmed in the plague, so they may already have moved to Spolento. But Guy, the eldest son of Lambert's second wife, did not immediately inherit Spolento. The sources I have indicate that Spilento was held for two years by someone named Berengar, about whom I have been able to dig up no evidence. Instead, Louis gave the 37-year-old Guy the Abbey of Metlach in the central Rhineland region. Which is interesting, because he was given an abbey, which is fun. Two years later, in 842, Guy was given Spolento. So, what gives? First, as we have noted many times, it was not yet a legal requirement in the Frankish Empire that the son inherit his father's offices. Even if that were to be the case, it's possible that Lothair was hoping Lambert II of Nantes the guy who blew up the Breton March, would himself come down and take Spolento, being the eldest son. Indeed, why he didn't is one of the many mysteries in this story. It may be that Lothair simply thought that Berengar was a better choice, and then changed his mind as a result of some failure or pressure from the Gadeshi. It may have been that Lothair wanted Guy to prove himself somehow, and the rule in Metlach was a way for him to earn his spurs, if you will forgive the anachronism. Another issue may have been that after being passed over, Guy made a particularly important marriage, which we'll talk about in a bit, but most of my sources indicate that the marriage happened after Guy took over in Spolento, but they're also very not specific about dates. The bottom line is, my sources are not really specific enough to give any good whys here, but for whatever reason, despite being initially passed over, Guy, son of Lambert of Nantes, took over the Duchy of Spolento in 842. It was time to meet the neighbors. The Pope, we have met, but some interesting developments had occurred by this point. Louis the Pious and Lothair issued the Constitutio Romana in 824, and more or less imposed it on the papacy. Amongst the other terms of this document, an imperial representative was required to be present at papal elections to ratify the process that was free and fair, and also established that legal disputes in the papal states could be appealed to the emperor. While publicly welcoming a document that aimed to ensure good government, The popes, in practice, fought against it at every turn. More papal elections than not were conducted without imperial representation, and the popes then sent vociferous apologies to the Frankish court afterward. It also became clear that pro-imperial and anti-imperial parties were developing within the city. Initially, the Roman aristocracy seemed to have been pro-emperor, probably as a way to increase their power. Within the curia, or the papal bureaucracy, things were more evenly matched, and many of the events of the early 800s hide an internecine conflict between these groups. The imperial faction eventually came out on top with the election of a number of imperial favorites, but these favorites were never wholly puppets, and the opposition never entirely eliminated. So by the time of Lambert's ascension to the ducal throne of Spolento, papal politics were already becoming fairly conflict-driven. To the south, things in Benevento were even more interesting. Prince Sicard had led the Lombards of Benevento in a recent massive expansion, which had seen them take over Capua and Salerno. As is often the case, the external expansion belied a serious internal decline. Despite the Romanization of the Lombards, the actual Roman population of the territory had no loyalty to them, and their rule was reportedly cruel. The economy of the duchy seems to have been based on war booty distributed by Sicard via massive building projects, but the new sources of wealth in Capua and Salerno created serious alternative pulls of power, even as the duchy was confronted with the ascendant maritime powers of Naples, Amalfi, and the Saracens. Sicard himself was apparently not well liked, even by the Lombards. The Lombard historian Ebenhard, who was generally sympathetic to his fellow Lombards, described Sicard thus, He persecuted the Beneventians with beastly wildness, a quite lewd man, unquiet, and puffed up with impudence and exaltation of will. To put icing on the cake, Sicard had a large number of cousins and brothers, all of whom were eligible to rule under Lombard law, and his son was an infant. Now, we left Guy in the process of meeting the neighbors, and the meeting with the Lombards must have been something special. As Guy moved to the door with his fruit basket and barbecue invitation, all of the stuff we have just been discussing must have tickled some key instincts in his Gadeshi heritage. Guy's job was to keep his southern border secure, something that had been problematic in the past. Indeed, one might have expected sharing an open border with the militaristic Sicard might fray on a person's nerves. But Sicard wasn't the only power at play here. There were also the Byzantines, the coastal Italian cities, and increasingly the Saracens. If Guy simply broke the Lombards, he would still have to face all those other folks. So, just like his family had done for years in the Breton March, Guy worked to manage the border in a different way. He married Sicard's sister, Ida, and freely gave his brother-in-law logistical aid and military support. This ensured that Spolento was not one of the people getting attacked by the Lombards, obviously, but also ensured that the other Lombards, the Byzantines, and the increasingly powerful coastal cities of central Italy, getting attacked. Furthermore, by helping to finance Sicard's tottering regime in its plethora of wars, Guy helped the Beneventian duchy over-expand, far past the region that could have been supported by its own agricultural and military resources. Larger numbers of hostile Romans came into Sicard's duchy. Romans made all the more hostile by Sicard's ham-fisted and cruel method of rule. When you take into account Sicard's domestic situation, Guy's gambit becomes absolutely brilliant. It was only a matter of time until the angry Romans and the power-hungry relatives made common cause against his brother-in-law. This happened in 859, when the leaders of Amalfi, enraged by Benevento's conquest of their city, entered into a conspiracy with Radilchus, Sicard's cousin and treasurer. Radilchus had Sicard stabbed to death and declared himself duke, while Amalfi took advantage of the confusion to drive the Lombards out of their territory, invade Salerno, and burn it to the ground. Radalkis's claim was rejected by Sicard's brother Sikunov, whom Radalkis had attempted to frame for the murder, and the Lombard duchy descended into civil war. In this civil war, the increasingly independent Lombard rulers of Capua backed Sikunov, who ensconced himself securely in Salerno once the troops of Amalfi had gone home. The traditional Lombard heartland was controlled by Radalkis, although the war allowed all the various Lombard nobles to begin to work for themselves. Everyone involved began hiring Saracen mercenaries to help in the wars, particularly Amalfi and Naples, who began opportunistically expanding their hinterlands at the Lombards' expense. Thus, with one assassination, the mighty state of Benevento was split into at least two pieces, its forces were thrown into confusion, and the south simply burst into flames. We can't be sure, of course, but Guy was probably smiling like the cat that got the canary. These were all relatives, after all, and so he made a practice of intervening to help out the weaker party, always in return for some minor territorial expansion or monetary donation, to Spolento. So when Guy died in 860, he left his family in amazing shape. From a bunch of refugees on the verge of disappearing from the pages of history, Guy had not only gained an important border duchy, He had secured the southern borders of the empire against all threats and expanded his territory mercilessly, at the expense of people who thanked him for the service. His son Lambert was a grown man when he assumed control of the duchy in 859, and was apparently well aware of his father's policies and councils, and so therefore there was no gap in rule. This sunny view was not shared by the stronger regional powers to whom the Gadeshi were bound, namely the empire and the papacy. The issue wasn't that the Lombards were a mess, or that the South was in flames. The issue was that everyone, but everyone, was hiring Saracen mercenaries. And as mercenaries will do, some of them got off the chain, and even more of them returned home with tales of the wealth they had gained killing Christians in southern Italy. In 847, they had conquered the key port of Bari on the Adriatic coast, and were engaging in piracy and raiding, in addition to their work as mercenaries. So the optics here for the Papacy and the Empire were getting pretty terrible. The Lombards, who were theoretically Frankish vassals, had brought in Muslims and were using them to fight civil wars, and allowing them to kill and enslave Christians all across the landscape. And the fact was that their sea raids were not stopping at the imperial borders. In fact, Saracen raids had become a real problem all across Italy by this point, even raiding up to the walls of Rome itself. Since the Lateran Palace and St. Peter and St. Paul's were outside the walls at this time, This was a pretty serious blow to the Christian power structure and ideological regime. All of these were sacked and burned. The fact that Lothair and his son Louis had apparently tried several times to drive off this raid, and consistently failed, made this event all the more alarming. By the time of Guy's death, any accolades that he had been receiving for keeping the southern border quiet had to have changed to something like shrill, panicked screams. The Saracens seemed to have gotten ensconced in southern Italy, and it was entirely likely that they were preparing to take over entirely. The young Lambert was probably not insensible to the threat posed by the Saracens. Shortly after his ascension in 859, he led an army to intercept a Saracen raiding party heading back to Bari. They fought a pitched battle, but ultimately the Saracens got within the city. This would seem to have been an outgrowth of his father's general policy, with a recognition of the threat posed by the Saracens, but then, a year later, Lambert rose in revolt against Emperor Louis II. This did not go well for Lambert. Louis led a massive army into Spolento, and Lambert fled to the city of Benevento, the nominal Lombard capital. Even here, Lambert was not safe, as Louis came in and surrounded the city. Ultimately, Lambert agreed to renew his allegiance to Louis, at which point Louis allowed him to resume his ducal office, no harm no foul. Unfortunately, our sources are pretty quiet on the whys and wherefores of this event. It seems like a pretty serious break in Gadeshi policy, but a few bits of context may let us fill in some of the silence. As we have said repeatedly in this podcast, Louis II was a very energetic and forceful king of Italy. Chris Wickham notes that his was the last time that a unified Italian state looked ascendant rather than beset by entropy until the modern period. This followed some years of neglect under Louis the Pious and Lothair, and while the church chroniclers were full of praise for centralizing monarchs who were good to the church, the nobles of Italy may have gotten overly comfortable with the previous benign neglect. Having an emperor in Pavia who was issuing dozens of laws aimed at reducing the abuses of the nobility might have, you know, annoyed the nobility. With the empire and the papacy focused on the south in a way that they had not been before, Louis may have begun interfering with the Gadeshi lombard policy. Indeed, almost from the moment of his ascension, Louis began making raids into Lombard territories, trying to bring Christians into his empire and trying to drive out the Saracens. Lambert may well have objected to this. After his short rebellion, however, Lambert seems to have towed the line for the following six years. He participated in Louis's raids and seems to have been back in the emperor's good graces. But really, Louis may not have had much of a choice. His goal was to eliminate the Saracen menace, and he could not afford to get bogged down in a reconquest of Spolento. So instead he did the other thing, the thing where you try to keep someone on side with gifts. Lambert took his share of the booty in the raids, and undoubtedly did well in terms of land expansions because he really was the only Frankish noble on site. The high point of this relationship came in 866, when Louis led an army south to take Capua, The whys are not really important, although they are very amusing, and they involve an apparently exceptionally depraved bishop, Prince, who was ruling the city at the time. Unable to take the city quickly, Louis settled into a siege, but then was forced to return to the north. Lambert was left in charge, with the grant of rule over Capua if he could take the city. There is some disagreement over whether he did in fact take it, but either way, this was the height of Spolento's power. The next year came the fall. The precipitating event was the death of Pope Nicholas I. My sources are not entirely clear on what the specific issue was. Hopefully Steve Guerra will be able to shed some light on it when the History of the Papacy podcast gets up to 867. But it seems that, as part of the continuing faction fight within the papal bureaucracy, Louis had been supporting someone else for Pope, other than the eventual winner, Adrian II. The Chroniclers claim that Louis was already reconciled to Adrian by the time of the election, but that somehow Lambert didn't get the memo. When the wrong guy was apparently elected, Lambert brought in an army of veterans, used to fighting in the more morally ambiguous South. The few terse descriptions we get of the event describe it as a sacking, but possibly not a particularly bad one. Some buildings were burned, theirs looting, and some women were... outraged, But before too much damage was done, Lambert seems to have been told to leave the city by Louis. The Pope, however, was pretty cheesed off, as you might imagine, and excommunicated Lambert. Louis refused to back up Lambert in the situation, and with that, Lambert had lost the favor of the Emperor, and ended up having to do a pretty serious amount of penance. This story, as described in the Chronicles, is extremely confused and kind of makes no sense. It seems likely to me that Louis was fully opposed to Adrian's election, but when things started to go pear-shaped, realized that letting Lambert's army loot Rome might not go off too well in the propaganda department. I think Louis threw Lambert under the bus here to cover over his support for the other guy, and I cite as my evidence the fact that Lambert was not removed from office, and that Louis felt the need to impose several imperial favorites on the papal administration, including one, Anastasius, who may have at one time been an anti-pope, and whose brother would, a few years later, also go off the reservation, and kidnap, rape, and murder the Pope's wife and daughter. The Dark Ages sure are fun. Whatever the behind-the-scenes story, this event once again put the already-none-too-wonderful relationship between Louis and Lambert back on shaky ground, just in time for Louis's big show, his all-or-nothing, getting the band back together big push into the south to eliminate the Emirate of Bari and drive the Saracens out of Italy. Lambert's forces were, of course, part of the army, as were all of Lambert's Lombard friends and relatives, the Italian coastal cities, a bunch of Illyrian pirates, and... sort of, at least, the Byzantines. It was a big deal, and after some back-and-forth fighting, some close calls, and the Byzantines proving themselves pretty thoroughly useless, not to mention five years, Louis ultimately triumphed. Afterwards, when it became clear that Louis was planning on sticking around, and asserting his rule in the South, the goodwill he had gained in the South turned sour pretty quickly the Lombards rallied around Articus, the Duke of Benevento. We aren't sure what role Lambert played in this affair, but we can guess at his motivations. Louis, who had just humiliated him over the whole Pope thing, was now looking to consolidate the South, thereby hemming in Spolento. Spolento joined Naples, Benevento, and Salerno in a conspiracy that managed to take Louis prisoner when he was sleeping in the Lombard Palace in Benevento. Disastrously for Lambert, Louis didn't remain in prison for long. A new Saracen raid arrived a few weeks later, and Articus released Louis on the condition that he help them fight off the Saracens and not seek revenge. To Louis's credit, he did help with the Saracens. Then he went home, smoldering mad, gathered another army, and headed south. Louis never was able to take Benevento, located as it was deep in the southern Italian mountains. But Spolento? That was different. Lambert was again driven to take shelter with the Lombards, but this time there would be no peace. Louis was in a towering rage. He appointed Lupo III to rule Spolento, scion of a family that had ruled the territory before the Gadeshi arrived in Italy. For the Gadeshi and from a family standpoint, this was a demotion of the most stark kind. The Gadeshi were now persona non grata, all of them. Louis had had enough, and there was no way that they were getting back Spolento. It helped betray the Emperor in his moment of triumph, a triumph that he had worked his entire reign to gain. While Louis was in the South, fighting the Saracens for Christianity, his uncles had stolen his right to inherit his brother's lands in the North. But that would have been okay. If Louis had been able to consolidate the South in the act of driving out the Saracens, he would have gained so much more. Commercial ports, an urban and sophisticated populace, naval power, Christian legitimacy, And it was all dust in his hands now, thanks to Lambert and the Lombards. And if he couldn't get his hands on the Lombards, he would ruin the Gadeshi. And then, a year later, Louis died suddenly without an heir. And all of his hairy, barbarous, Frankish uncles started moving south. Okay, that's it for today. I got a lot of great feedback about these shorter episodes, so I'm going to stick with this format for a while. Tune in next time as the Gadeshi find themselves once again on the outs, and the plot twists and surprise deaths really begin to stack up. We will also deal with a complicated succession and the end of the Frankish Empire. You won't want to miss it.